All right, let's dive into God's Word. Take out your Bibles. If you don't have one, there should be one under the seat in front of you. Uh, I would like to welcome everyone on site, Rockland, watching online. Hi to all you streaming folks. We are in part 27 of our Being Jesus series, and I entitled today's message, New Rules for Those Closest to Us. And I want to begin by drawing your attention to the fill in the blank on the sheet that was handed to you at the front door. Uh, just by making a couple quick comments, you would think that because we have a faith based on a relational concept that we'd be good at relationships. Here's what I mean. Jesus said that the entire Bible hangs on two concepts. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Both of those are relationships, relationship with God, relationship with other people. You would assume then that if we bake in that over and over and over again, if we're consistently reading a book telling us how to do relationships well, if we are connected to a God who demonstrates how relationships are healthy, that we would have healthier relationships. And yet one of the most embarrassing things about the modern day American church is that our statistics on how we handle things in our homes are no different than the world. It's embarrassing that our divorce rate is the same. It's embarrassing that we have the same problems and we're treating our spouses the same way. It's embarrassing that we are still lying and manipulating one another. It's embarrassing that there's still just as much anger and hatred that is internalized than is out in the world. There should be transformation in God's people. What Jesus did not lay down was the concept that, man, I'm going to put this massive weight on my kids that says, just try harder than the world. That's not what he said. What he said was, I will rescue you, I will lead by example, and I will put my Holy Spirit inside you to give you power to actually change. So we are to be different every year that we walk with Jesus. And you can even say it in a silly way. You can say, man, I steal so much less this year than I did last year. Man, I have punched so many less people in the face this year than I did last year, right? There should be some movement forward about us really wanting what God wants, thinking about what God thinks about, caring about what God cares about, as opposed to just trying to be good people. If we just try harder, we're going to fail. But what it ultimately comes down to is a consumer mindset and mentality. We have bought hook, line, and sinker, the world's view that we are here to consume. And what that means is we try to consume everything. When we go out into the marketplace, we are catered to by advertising that says it's all about us. And so we go out assuming I need to take, 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 because I'm going to go get everything I can because it's all about me. That is not the biblical view. The biblical view is that you are here to give. The biblical view is that we are servants. The biblical view is that it's you are to consider others better than yourselves. The biblical view is Jesus, who if anyone should have been served, put the towel over his arm and started washing the feet of the disciples. Our leader of the entire reality of Christianity lived a life of service. People were better when Jesus left 
than when he arrived. That is our mandate. That's how our lives should be. But the problem is we bought into the world's view. So we have things like we're impatient when we're driving because it should get out of my way. Why is it your way? Why isn't it their way? Why is the traffic light taking too long? Because other people have to go, right? Why is it you? What, you suddenly own the road now, right? And we go in. I was reflecting on this. I found myself getting antsy in a drive-thru for food, right? Which by just saying that, stupid, right? Because here's the deal. Do you really want your food as fast as you think you do? Because here's the problem. If you drive up and go, all right, I would like six of those burgers and three of those fries and blah, 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 blah. And you drive and they hand it to you. Are you nervous? They didn't make that now. They made that like three days ago and they just handed it to you. There's a consequence to instantaneous, right? And we take that consumer mentality and we take it into the church and we start going, well, I hope this, I hope that music sets what I want and that gets me connected to God. And I hope that, you know, that the sermon is what I want to hear and I hope that is about me and I hope it's not about that stupid campaign thing. And, you know, I mean, it's right. We get into that. What do you mean you'll have lattes? You know, I mean, it's, we get into this. I should be able to drop my kid off whenever I want, not volunteer and blah, blah. You know, we get this attitude that we've come and everywhere we go, someone's supposed to serve us. The fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is simply this. People are not here to use. People are not here to use. People are not a commodity. People are not something that even if they agree to be used by you, you do not have any right to use them. If you are in a relationship and the other person is unhealthy and they're allowing you to abuse them, does not give you a right to abuse them. We live by a different code. We are Christians. We are mimics of Christ. We are believers. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You do not use other people. What Jesus wants to do is lay down new rules for how his household works. And so we have been on the Sermon on the Mount, and he's been going through little teachings one after the other. And as he goes through these things, he's telling you, this is how it should work in my house. And he hits on the issue of relationships and what we've been doing with each other. So let's dive into it. We're going to be a little bit in the Bibles, a little bit on the screen when it gets combination. And then we'll go back to the Bibles and we'll wrap it up. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. Page 810, Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. Jesus is going to talk about promises, making promises, keeping vows and oaths. And this is what he said. He said, again, meaning there's a lot of teachings, but he said, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, meaning in the Old Testament, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. He said, all right, so we all were raised Jewish because in his crew, that was all the Jewish people gathering around him. He said, all right, so as Jews, we've always been raised up knowing the Old Testament. We get the Ten Commandments, right? And we know that the third commandment says this, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Do you have any idea what that commandment means? I, I, I know what you were probably taught. If you, if you were ever taught this under 20 years old, your parents were saying, don't cuss. That's all they were saying, 
right? That's actually not what it says. Uh, regardless of whether or not you place God next to damn it is not really the idea that it's trying to get to. Whether you put an H in the middle of Jesus and Christ is not the point. The point is, do not attach God's name to something he has no business being involved in. Now, does that relate to profanity? Sure it does. But it's more than that. It's talking about promises. It's talking about swearing by God, I promise I'll do that. You're manipulating people. Do not attach God's name to manipulating other people. And you go, well, was that really happening a lot? Yeah, actually it was. Let me share with you the law that Jesus quoted, one other piece to it, and then I'll tell you how it happened. Numbers chapter 30, one through two says this, Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the people of Israel. And he said this, this is what the Lord has commanded. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Jesus said, you and I know that we are supposed to be men of character to carry out and do what we say we're going to do and stop dragging God's name into it. But then he takes it one step further. But I say to you, verse 34, you've heard that. I tell you this, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Okay, what's his point? He's referring to the oath game. Anybody ever play the oath game? No, of course you haven't. You're not an ancient Jew. All right. It's very similar to the cross your fingers game. Y'all know what the cross your fingers game is? All right, cross your fingers game means I can promise you anything, but if I cross one finger over the other and hide it behind my back, I can lie to you. Do we all understand how messed up that is? That's not good. All right, well, the Jews had their own version of the cross your fingers game, and it was the oath game. They had two different types of promises. They had absolutely binding promises and not absolutely binding promises. The only way to know which was which was that anything that invoked the name of God was absolutely a promise. Now, if you didn't mention God, I don't know, we'll see. Maybe it'll work, maybe it won't work. We're going to kind of see how this day goes. The problem is they made it into a game because if you merely had to invoke the name of God or not, don't you think everyone could tell? Because they're like, hey, that guy didn't mention God's name, so I don't know if it's legit. Shouldn't you at some point hold them suspicious? Well, you have to find a way to manipulate your way around that. So what they would do is they would refer to stuff that was about God and that sounded legit. So they would say, I swear to you by Jerusalem, the holy city. And everyone's like, whoa. Hey, whoa, that's God's city. He really means it. And he's like, didn't say God, sucker, right? <laughs> what is Jesus' point on all this? Your game is stupid. That's actually what his point was, which is God owns all the stuff. You don't get to play games about this is binding, this is not binding, this is important, this is not important. You cannot swear by Jerusalem. God owns Jerusalem. Can't swear by earth. God owns earth. Can't swear by heaven. God owns heaven. You're always involving God into the process, especially as a believer. Every word that comes out of your mouth is attached to God. It doesn't matter whether or not you think it's serious or not. 
You are a child of God. You walk under the banner of God. You are indwelt by the spirit of God. So every word that comes out of your mouth is attached to God. So think about all the comments that you've made when driving. God has some colorful language, right? So Jesus said this, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. We should be of such high character that our comments don't need collateral. If you have to promise that you're going to do something, that means no one trusts you. You get it? That means your word means nothing. If you have to qualify your statements, you have an integrity issue. No, 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 seriously, dude, I swear I'm going to do that. Okay, that means no one believes you. Something's wrong, and that is not the way of a believer. If a believer says they can or can't, that's how it should be. Here's a problem for a lot of us, and I'm talking about me. We, we say things that we are going to do because we're nice. And we don't know how to use the word no. And so we say yes to a whole bunch of stuff we can't follow through on. And that ruins our credibility. That's a challenge. We got to learn to use the word yes and the word no appropriately. All right. Let's go ahead and throw up the next uh, on the screen. This is a combo passage of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now here's where things get a little bit different. Jesus is about to talk about the issue of divorce. Because that is another issue. If we're going to talk about oaths vows, promises, vows are attached to marriage. And a lot of marriages were falling apart just like it is in modern day America. And Jesus wanted to address the issue because other people were trying to drag him into controversy. Now, where we come into a problem is that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus drives through, makes a very small, short comment on divorce, and then moves on. That's in chapter five of Matthew. He addresses it again further in chapter 19. So I had to make a choice as the teacher. Do I address it all now or address it twice? I don't want to address it twice. So I took the 19 passage, slid it all the way back here and taught it all at the same time. We got that? What that does is pull the 19 out of context. So what I'm about to read to you happened later in Jesus's life, but it sets up the context. All right, here we go. This is what it says. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from northern Israel of Galilee and entered the southern region, the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. That's called Perea. And large crowds followed him and gathered to him again. And he healed them there. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. All right, so Jesus is fulfilling his ministry. This is later on in the ministry, but he's going to address the issue of divorce. So we're going to talk about it right here. To pull the concepts that Jesus is about to drop on divorce out of context and put them in modern day America is dangerous. You have to understand the mindset to know why Jesus said what he said. So let me give you a little background. The Jews thought of divorce in a very serious way. All right. They had a high view of marriage and a low view of divorce. Theoretically, practically, they were okay with it. Now, here's how the Old Testament 
divorce proceeding happened. How could you get divorced in the Old Testament way before Jesus? Well, Moses laid down something and he used a phrase called give her a letter of divorce. What does that mean? Let me give you my paraphrase on what the letter of divorce is because here's how it worked. If a man wanted to divorce his wife in the Old Testament, all he had to do was have two witnesses present. Okay. Then he had to hand her a letter that said, let this divorce be from me to divorce you. And this serve as a letter of dismissal and freeing you from the covenant so you can marry anyone else you wish. And then it was done. That's it. That was the entire process. There's no waiting period. There was no nothing else. It was, Hey, you want to get divorced? All right, let's get divorced right now. That was all women could not divorce men. Men could only divorce women. So we have an oddity there because we also have arranged marriages and all the other strange issues that go in. But what's interesting is that by Jesus' time, it's not all that different. The wording got more fancy, so you had to have a rabbi draw it up. Then you had to have it approved by three rabbis, and then the Sanhedrin council had to lock it down. But the wording was the same. If you decided to divorce, you could go through without getting hassled very much. It was a relatively easy process. That's very strange for the Jewish people who have such a high view of marriage. And here's why their view was so high. They believed that marriage was a sacred vow, meaning it's a God thing. That whenever you invoke the name of God into something, it's now his property. It's not your property. So you can't break something you did with God. They know the rules. And you go, well, that is interesting. You know, well, that's not what I did. You know, I, I, yeah, I grabbed a pastor, but I wasn't even listening to him. I get it. Okay. So a lot of us got married. I've done over 75 weddings. I know the people looking googly eyed at each other are not listening to a word I say. <laughs> I'm sitting there talking about promises back and forth. They're like, yeah, 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 whatever, dude. And then they just kind of want to move forward. Right. You brought me in. If you ever bring in nerdy church guy, you're going to involve God. We just dropped God's bomb right into there and said, we're fusing it together on God's authority. Therefore, it's no longer between the two of you. It's between you guys and God. And God is not going to allow you to break that. And you go, oh, good. I only use the justice of the peace. I didn't involve any of that religious stuff. All right, so you're not legit, you're not truly married, now you've been living in sin the whole entire time. You feel better about that? <laughs> what my point is, either your marriage is legit or it's not legit. That's it. If it's legit, it's under God. If it's not legit, it's not legit. So if it is truly right, then that means God has been involved in it. And I don't care if it was the justice of the peace or not. I'm just messing around with you. But the idea is if God locks something down, that's God's business. They call that a sacred vow. And theoretically they were to hate divorce because in Malachi 2:16, God said, I hate divorce. And you have to agree with God. So that's why they thought that also culturally, they pushed divorce very intensely. All men were to be married by 20. If you were not, you better have a darn good reason why. And there's only one reason why you shouldn't be married. And that's if you dedicated your whole life to the study of the law and you didn't have to get married at that point. So that's almost like a priest vow of celibacy, that kind of stuff. That was very rare. All other men were married by 20. For example, we know Paul, the apostle, when he wrote and did ministry was not married, but as a Pharisee, 
he should have been married by 18. So Paul was probably married. I don't know what happened to his marriage, but by the time we get to him, he is single, right? So they had so much pressure on people to get married. They even use phrases like this. If you don't get married and have kids, you are lessening the image of God in the world. Second pressure, you're killing all your children that you could have had. Now, anybody need that kind of pressure? Seriously? Come on. We're talking about a highly pressurized environment of getting married. Uh, the other thing that was what was interesting is they believed that it was a positive commandment of God that you could not violate. For example, Adam and Eve, he said, be fruitful and multiply. That was a command. That was not a suggestion. Therefore, if it's a command, you have to do it. And so in their minds, marriage was a necessary issue. With all those things, it really packed it in. Here's something you probably don't know. In Jesus' day, there were two reasons why you were forced to be divorced in Jewish culture. And you would go, that's weird. I didn't even think about that. First reason is adultery. Adultery is breaking of the covenant. Therefore, you had to get divorced if adultery was involved. The second one was sterility. If you could not have children within 10 years, you were forced to get divorced because you had, that wasn't working. You had to go try it with somebody else. When you get into the next marriage, you got a 10 year window and go once again, a lot more pressure, right? And you had to hop that until you became past the childbearing age. And then everyone went, well, I guess that's not going to work because they believed that it was for the future of Israel that you had to have children, that you had to have sons. That's kind of how it kept things going. So they had these weird rules. That's not God's rules. That was Israel's rules. All right. The only other thing that you need to know about context is that outside the Jewish world, you had two philosophies swirling around society, Roman and Greek. The Romans ran the world. They were over charge of the Jews, but they were heavily involved by the Greeks. Greek involvement in Roman culture ultimately led to the downfall of the family. They believed that extramarital affairs were just how life is. The Greeks had quotes that said, we have women to take care of the house. We have other women for other things. They had a whole view that everything that was done for a guy that had to do with his wife was more legal and everything outside was for his passion. So they assumed that you were always going to have extramarital affairs. And so you have a culture surrounding this Judaism where marriage is falling apart so that the Roman government had to step in and give tax incentives just to get people to get married and stay married. If you did not have children, you were fined, right? So they had all these weird ways of trying to rescue marriage because it had fallen apart so badly. This is the context in which Jesus is talking. We got it? All right, here's what happened. It says, and Pharisees came up to Jesus and they tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, to divorce one's wife for any cause? Why would they say it like that? Because they're trying to drag him into the big controversy. Moses said something in Deuteronomy 24 that got the whole ball rolling. Let me read it to you. Moses said this, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, remember that phrase, 
And he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she leaves. If she goes and becomes another man's wife and that man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out, or if he dies, then her former husband who had sent her away first can't take her again to be his wife. She's been defiled and that's an abomination to the Lord. Okay. That one passage caused this massive controversy because what it said was there is an allowance for divorce. What's the allowance that a man finds indecency in his wife? What does indecency mean? Nobody knew. And so you began this big, huge fired up controversy and you had two camps. You go, well, come on. It meant adultery. It can't mean adultery. Why? Because Leviticus 20:10, that Moses also wrote says, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress will be put to death. So it can't be that she'd be dead. It has to be something else. So what, what is it? So rabbis started arguing about it. And by the time we got to Jesus, there was a big battle raging over what indecency meant and what could allow for divorce. So you had super conservative group. That was Shammai's team. That's his name, Rabbi Shammai. He said that it may not be adultery specific, although it does apply to adultery. It's any sexual misconduct, but that's the only thing. And everyone was like, whoa, that was pretty strict. Rabbi Hillel said indecency means he doesn't like her anymore. And you go, uh, what do you mean by that? And he goes, no, seriously, if she put too much salt in your food, she gone. If... <laughs> literally if you if you find someone more attractive she's gone if and it goes on and on and on he literally lists out all these things if she argues with you if she makes fun of your parents if she, i mean it's just it's any and every reason so which one do you think was more popular right it was that one because it was a male dominated culture so they were taking this view the pharisees grabbed jesus and said where do you stand on this controversy is it sexual misconduct or is it anything and everything because they're trying to get jesus busted they want him to take a side so other people don't like them so how does he respond to this check this out and he answered them have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said meaning god Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, which means she becomes his closest relative. They are fusing together and the two will become one flesh that is gluing, welding, adhering together. You are no longer two entities. You're one that is shown up physically in your children where you look at your kids and you go, man, that's a little bit like me. It's a little bit like my wife. That is one person out of two. He's saying that's actually what you are now. You can't cut a child in half without causing some problems, right? At least that's what I heard. I haven't, I haven't tried that. I'm just saying, all right? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. What was his response? You're trying to drag me into this ridiculous controversy. Okay, I'm shooting over the top of it. Let's ignore Moses completely. Let's go back to what my father said in the first place. What did he say? Man, woman, lock it down. That's it. That's the way it goes. So I'm not getting into this argument with you. I'm telling you that if God fused something together, there's no way you're going to rip it apart without causing havoc and damage. So no, I'm not with you. There is no divorce. That's not going to work out. 
Now, do I understand it is around? Sure, but I'm not going to debate with you about what's the good kind of divorce. There is no good kind of divorce. It all hurts. It's all painful. So no, we're not doing that. Not in my house. Well, they weren't cool with that. So they tried to drag him into it further. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Now, did Moses really force people to get divorced? No. Jesus said, I'm sorry, what did Moses command you? Moses didn't command you. They said, all right, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives and wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, it was not so. Go to the next piece. Yes, it was said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, this is Jesus clarifying the intention of the father, that everyone who, meaning whoever, divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery against that wife and makes her, his prior wife, commit adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter because it was complicated. And he said to them, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. He's harming her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. All right. This is known as the exception clause. Remember how all the Jews had their views on what Moses said? Now every church has their views on what Jesus meant. So let's talk about it real quick. Here's how it works. Here's Jesus's argument. I am never pro-divorce. The sheer fact that we're having this discussion means everything fell apart. The mere reason that we are in a sinful world with sinful people, that selfishness wrecks all marriages, is not something I'm into. I'm not going to authorize it. I'm not going to be okay. But let me explain the reality of the situation. The reality of the situation is that God fused something together and called it one flesh. You remember that? The idea is flesh. It means a fusing together of flesh. But when you go and have adultery with someone else, you flesh together with someone else that violates and breaks apart the first one. So it's not an allowance for divorce. It's merely stating what you just did. So no, I'm not giving you an allowance for divorce. I'm just calling it as it is. If you wreck one, I'm just calling it wrecked. You fused another one, so now we have a problem, don't we? So no, I'm not pro or allowing or giving you freedom to do so. As a matter of fact, on the controversy issue, I don't side with either one of those guys because what I'm going to say is there's no divorce at all. Any divorce is ultimately adultery. You just need to know that. Because God fused it together, you don't have a chance to break it apart. Now, physically, you mess it up and you ruin it, and so you end up having to find another one. I, I get it. But that's not okay. Here's the other thing that was interesting. Jesus mentions women divorcing men, but that wasn't allowed in Jewish culture. Why would he say that? Well, first of all, he always grabbed women and elevated them in status. Second of all... He knew that he was going to have followers that were Gentiles that weren't Jewish. And he knew that in their society, women could get divorced, just not in Jewish society. So we addressed that as well. Here's the other thing, ladies, in case you're wondering about how the Bible's mean to you. In the Old Testament, do you know why Moses said they had to give him a certificate of divorce? Everyone automatically thinks that that is an out for the dude. It's actually not. It was a protection for the wife. 
because in their society, there was no way for a single woman to make a living. So instead of a guy just divorcing his wife and leaving a bunch of carnage all over the world with women unable to get remarried because they're still married to that joker, he had to give them a document that said, I free you, you can now be taken care of by someone else. The whole point of writing the letter and certificate was to protect women. It was to shield them from bad guys. I know a lot of us don't view it that way, but that's the way that it was intended. So what's the point about this? Here's the last thing you need to know. In Jewish culture and biblically, if the divorce is legit, remarriage is legit. Because the very purpose of handing the form says you can remarry. There is no divorce without remarriage. So a lot of people go, I don't know, you know, maybe I can't get remarried because of this and that. Oh, wait, wait. If the divorce is legit, the remarriage is legit. If the divorce isn't legit, the remarriage isn't legit. And ultimately, no matter how we spin it, everyone gets slimed. And we are all end up being adulterers. Now you look and you go, well, that's that pastor just talking. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Listen, there's no one in my family other than me that's not divorced. I'm a product of divorce. I've been around divorce. All my friends growing up were divorced. I, that has been my entire life. The whole idea of remaining married is weird to me. So no, I get it. I understand it. I live through it. I have the pain. I understand where you're coming from. You're not getting judgment from me. I get it. It's only by the grace of God that I'm still married. So I'm not trying to say something against you. I'm just talking about what God said to us as a family about how our family works. Notice what he says here. The disciples said to him, man, if that's the case, it's better not to marry. Man, if I'm stuck with this lady forever, forget it. Peter's like, hey, hold up, dude. I'm already married. What are you doing? (laughs) Right? But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by man. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. What did Jesus mean? He meant simply this. I get it. It's a big challenge. And maybe you need to be single. All I'm saying is not everybody can handle the single thing. There are some people that are born, let's say there's no sex drive or for whatever physical issues they have, maybe handicap, deformity, whatever it is, maybe that there's no way they're going to get married. All right, that's a birth issue. Then there's some who are made castrated. They're made eunuchs by men. That happened in the ancient world, that if you're ever going to work with the king's wife or his girls, you better not be messing around. So we will do stuff to make sure you don't. He said, all right, as creepy as that is, that's another category. Then there's those who for their calling said, I want to be single for the rest of my life because I'm going to be focused on the Lord and advancing his kingdom. That was Jesus, right? Jesus never got married. That was Paul that later on, he never remarried. Why? Because he was saying, I'm all in with God. This is where you get the concept of a priest taking a celibate vow. That's where this all comes from. He said, not everybody can handle that. You don't play around with that stuff. It's better to marry than burn with passion is actually what Paul said. But you know what? Here's the deal. Whether you're single or you're married, be content. Wherever you're at in life, it doesn't matter. Neither one solves all your problems. Live it before the Lord, be content and have some joy. And you go, man, you know what? I go to church and then Lance just drops his bummer right on top of me, right? 
And it's like, now he's just calling everybody an adulterer. Hold on. I haven't got there yet. Let's move to the next one. <laughs> Matthew chapter five, verse 27. Let's close it out with this. Turn with me there. Matthew five twenty-seven. In case you thought you wiggled out of this one, let me just bust everybody. You're like, man, marriage is hard. You know, it's kind of like, well, that's adultery. What's going All right. Here's what it says. You've heard that it was said in the old Testament, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now you're all busted. <laughs> what does that mean? You're like, seriously, Jesus just took the bar and raised it even higher and said, by the way, while we're talking about all this adultery thing, your thoughts and your mind matter. Uh Oh, there was a book that came out a while back called every man's battle. It was about the issue of battling pornography. And because pornography is so prevalent, it's become a problem for all of us, all of us guys. I'm in the category. Everybody's in the category here because it's everywhere around you. There's all kinds of advertisements. There's all kinds of stuff going on and it is on every corner and everywhere you turn. But here's what's intriguing. If indeed Jesus was talking about lust at that level, then actually the, the book should have been called every man's an adulterer. You understand what I'm saying? And so you go, well, was it only guys? No. Cause here's what lust means. Lust means you want to consume someone else. Therefore your use, you want them. Now in the Bible viewpoint, in a Jewish culture, there was not a lot of single people running around. Everybody was married. All the guys were married. All the girls were married about by 12 to 15. So there were no single people. So everyone you had your eye on was another man's wife. That's why it was do not covet your neighbor's wife. That's why it's in the Ten Commandments. Do not commit adulteries in the commandments because there's not a lot of single people running around. And his whole point in locking that down was you're violating all kinds of things by wanting other people and wanting to consume them for your benefit. You think that's only men? No, that is women as well. All the whole, I'm going to dream about that guy and why is that, you know, that girl's married to that guy. She doesn't deserve him. I wish he was mine. And that obsession over towards that, it's all the same thing because we're treating people like consumables. We're saying, I need, I'm going to use you to fill that need. And so we create all sorts of fantasy ideas in our head. We create all sorts of damage. And then we start looking at each other as if we were a commodity. What that's doing to our society is eroding all the fabric. And we wonder why there's so many problems. Y'all, we're not very nice to each other. We don't seem to get that this world isn't for you to use, but that you're here to bring benefit. You're here to love on other people. You're here to solve problems, not create problems. You are here to protect, not to devour. Listen, whether or not it's lying, divorce, adultery of the mind, you guys, we're all messed up. Nobody escapes this. And you go, then what's the point? What is your point of your message? Is it just to make me sad? Here's my point. What do you think Jesus was doing? I think Jesus was doing a couple things. First thing he said was, let me tell you how it happens in our house. I will never be okay with you hurting each other. You understand? I'm never going to authorize that. I'm never going to say, oh, whatever. No, you do not hurt each other in any way. 
You don't lie. You don't focus on your mind in hatred or wickedness. You don't do any of that stuff. I'm not going to allow that to happen in my family. So first of all, that's my bar. Secondly, our new standard is perfection. We are going to be like my father, period. And if we're not like my father, I guess you're in trouble, huh? Because if you're not perfect, you ain't going to heaven. And then everyone went, oh, and he goes, oh, I guess you need a savior then, huh? Oh, look, that's what I came to do. I came to save you. So yes, the bar is way too high for you ever to jump to. That's why I rescue you and you're never going to make it without me. So here's what I think the message is. The message is, but by the grace of God, go I, right? There is no room for smug, self-righteous, religious people running around going, I can't believe all those sinners in the world. You're one of them. So am I. So you don't get to be cocky. You don't get to run around and talk about everybody else's garbage like as if you don't have any. Of course you do. We are all sinners in the hands of an angry God. Therefore, we need a savior who will redeem, who will rescue, who will deliver, who will raise us back up, put his spirit in us, cleanse us from all our sin and give us a new life. So are we broken? Yes. Are we adulterers? Yes. Are we hurting people? Yes. But God is trying to make us something more than that. He's trying to bring us alive in him. He's trying to make us partakers of the divine nature. He's trying to say, let's live differently because I have empowered you and I've indwelt you. And so the message here is the bar is too high for you to cut it alone, but praise God, we have a good savior. Amen. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly father, thank you for a wonderful day. And yes, God, we are broken. Yes, Lord, we need you. Would you set us free? Lord, there are so many bondages and issues going on in our hearts, in our lives. Our marriages are rough. Our relationships are tough. And I pray, God, that you would help us to be different. Not because we're just trying harder, but because we are different people. Change us from the inside out. Give us new thoughts and dreams and wants and hates. Your word says to love you and hate sin. And God, we're really wrestling with that part. So I just pray that you'd help to clarify for us what is like you and what is not. May you be glorified in all of us. In Jesus' name, amen.